welcome to the Death of the Roman Republic host series episode 4, Fulvia, Peerless and Fearless. As I said in post series episode 3, I'm doing a short series focusing on the women of the Roman world whose lives are intertwined with the death of the Roman Republic. While Roman society was very patriarchal and women had limited agency, their actions still affected events in the Roman world. Last time, the focus was on Servilia, who was a truly fascinating figure to learn about, and today, we focus on Fulvia. If you're a DOTRR listener, but have no idea who Fulvia is, it is because I did not actually say her name in the main series, but only in Servilia's bonus episode. Now, I knew a bit about Fulvia, and she did have a role in the death of the Roman Republic, but I didn't think it was anything too major. But honestly, that was an oversight, and she was important enough to have at least been named. As described by the ancient historian Plutarch, Fulvia wanted to rule a ruler and command a commander. Now, in my defense about not naming Fulvia, I did not want to overload listeners with a ton of names, and Fulvia was only relevant, for a lack of better words, in chapter 16 of the main series, and she was dead by the end of the episode. It's too bad she won't live. But then again, who does? With all that said, memento mori, and let's start the show. Fulvia was born in 83 BCE to Marcus Fulvius Bambalio, that's my Sopranos audition, and Sopranio. Since her father was from the Fulvius family, his daughter was Fulvia. Fulvia had quite the aristocratic pedigree, and both her father and mother were from successful political families. Such a pedigree was quite valuable for political alliances, and she would be married three times in life to fulfill that purpose. Fulvia's first marriage was to Publius Claudius Pulcher. Now that name should sound a bit familiar, because Claudius was the frenemy to the first triumvirate of Julius Caesar, Pompey Magnus, and Marcus Licinius Crassus. Caesar and Pompey legally changed the patrician Claudius into a plebeian so he could be a tribune of the plebs. The first triumvirate hoped that by doing Claudius a solid, the tribune Claudius would help them out. But Claudius was a bit of a WILD CARD! Sometimes helping the triumvirs, sometimes insinuating Pompey should be assassinated. It's also worth mentioning that even before all this, Claudius was literally caught in the middle of an affair with Julius Caesar's wife. Caesar was Pontifex Maximus, head priest of Rome, and at the festival of Bonadea, his house was made a girls-only zone with no men allowed because religion. Claudius cleverly snuck his way in, disguised as a woman, so he could meet up with Caesar's wife Pompeia. But they were caught frocking around. Caesar divorced his wife, who had to be above suspicion, but he didn't legally prosecute Claudius, who profaned a religious ceremony by having a penis and trying to use it at the festival of Bonadea, or in other words, trying to bone a- I don't know where I'm going with this. I'm gonna edit this. Anyway, all that happened in 62 BCE, right before, or just at the start, of Fulvia's marriage to Claudius, so auspicious, of course, as has been said and illustrated throughout the show, Roman aristocrats loved some
It's worth introducing one of Fulvia's enemies here, one Marcus Tullius Cicero. Cicero was Rome's greatest orator, and his gift of speech allowed him to rise high in politics, unlike Claudius, who belonged to the eminent Claudii family and had an easy in to politics. Cicero had a great love for the Roman Republic and would later align with the likes of Cato the Younger rather than Julius Caesar. But right now, Cicero was disgusted with the actions of Fulvia's husband Claudius, who was bending Rome's laws and traditions to their breaking point. Cicero used his mastery of speech to try and tear down Claudius and implied that Claudius had an incestuous relationship with his sister Claudia. While Cicero earned the enmity of Claudius, Claudia, and Fulvia, Claudius was not actually taken down by Cicero. Claudius used his power to exile Cicero from Rome and then had a mob burn down Cicero's house. Quick, someone call Crassus! Oh my god! We're having a fire sale! Oh, the burning! It burns me! Evacuates all the school children! Ah! Oh, me! This isn't a fever! Sing, Grace! Can't even see where the knob is! So, Fulvia's loving husband Claudius was ambitious and brusquely wielded his power. And for good measure, he also became a gang lord to intimidate and inflict violence upon his enemies. As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. This was around chapter 10 in the main series, when Caesar was conquering Gaul and Rome was falling to chaos. In the 50s BCE, Claudius's violence produced a rival gang lord named Milo, who was backed by Pompey Magnus, who hated and feared Claudius, the monstrous creature he created by making him a plebeian, allowing him to be a tribune of the plebs, and thereby reaping power. I've made a huge mistake. Fortunately for Pompey, Claudius would be killed in 52 BCE by Milo's gang outside of Rome. Fulvia would bring his corpse back to Rome and drag it through the streets. She showed the wounds he sustained by the assassins and showed her devotion to her husband and showed her intention to avenge him. And yeah, while some would say this is a little abnormal, if my girl isn't gonna drag my corpse through the streets after I get got, then she ain't my girl. Fulvia's political show really riled up the Roman populace. As divisive as Claudius was, he had a core of supporters. Supporters who were very upset that he was murdered. A funeral pyre was built at the Senate House for Claudius, and the frenzied flames would burn it to the ground. Milo would be brought to trial for, you know, murder, and Fulvia would testify against her husband's killer. Milo would be exiled from Rome. And as far as Claudius's gang went, Fulvia still controlled them, apparently. Yeah, a woman gang lord. Very progressive for the time. That was coming from Wikipedia, but there's a lot of citations in that paragraph that make it clear Fulvia became very active in Roman politics at the time of her husband's death, which again, like, only men did politics, so that's pretty crazy. She apparently was trying to keep Claudius's name and cause alive, and from that, garnered power in her own name. 
And if my girl isn't gonna martyr me for political gain, then she ain't my girl. Now, if gang wars are any indication of how things were in Rome at this point in time, things were falling apart. Extraordinary times called for extraordinary measures, and Poppy Magnus was made sole consul of Rome in 52 BCE, which was also an indication that things were falling apart, since Rome was always supposed to have two consuls. With his power as consul, Pompey would force Claudius' supporters from the city, assumingly for subversion, but he couldn't force out the widow Fulvia, who was technically not a politician, because I'm assuming he was just focusing on the male politicians. Yet Fulvia still held on to the power of Claudius's name. Fulvia was an attractive widow. Again, she herself had an aristocratic pedigree, and she was now connected to the Claudii family, possibly the most famous Roman family, and had two Claudian children, a son and daughter who bore the family name. The son was named Publius Claudius Pulcher, and their daughter was Claudia. Whoever her second husband would be would gain an in with the prestigious Claudii family. That second husband was Gaius Scribanius Curio. Curio would be a supporter of Julius Caesar and his coming civil war against Pompey Magnus, Cato the Younger, and the Optimates, and Curio would be killed in the civil war. As mentioned in chapter 12 of Death of the Roman Republic, Caesar lost one of his generals and many men in their failure to gain North Africa. That general happened to be Fulvia's husband, Curio. Back on the market again, Fulvia's next husband was the utter Hunka Hunka! Mark Antony. They were married around 47 or 46 BCE. This was also Mark Antony's third marriage, who had just divorced his wife for her infidelity. During this time, Mark Antony was living large as a loyal and visible lieutenant of Julius Caesar. During this time, Caesar was wrapping up his civil war in Africa, and Pompey Magnus was dead. Caesar had been given a temporary dictatorship, and Antony was master of horse, traditionally a Roman dictator's right-hand man. Antony was the highest-ranking man in Italy and took the illustrious Fulvia as his bride. Yet for all of Antony's credentials, he had a ton of baggage. He was a bit of a hot mess, a theme that continues in his life. Very recently, as master of horse, he was criticized as a showboat with his power while simultaneously underperforming in the important tasks that Caesar trusted him with, like effectively running Italy and not alienating Rome from Caesar's cause. Of course, Antony was a known partier who was visibly hungover and vomiting at at least one public event, and he was a womanizer, as his extramarital relationship with the actress Cytheris was an open secret. Cicero, Rome's master orator, had returned from exile and was gravely troubled by Mark Antony's behavior. Cicero worried if this reckless behavior would become the new norm in Caesar's Roman Republic. Despite all this, with politics being a major theme in most Roman marriages, Antony and Fulvia seemed genuinely in love at the start of their marriage. Cicero speculated that they had been having an affair a decade previous. Adrian Goldsworthy has a very sweet passage about Fulvia and Antony in his book, Antony and Cleopatra, so it didn't work out in the end. I never got to mention it in the main series, but it seems worth mentioning now. Antony's antics had gotten him in hot water with Caesar, because Antony's screw-ups reflected poorly on Caesar. However, when Antony and Caesar finally got to meet up again, Caesar treated Antony with great honor, letting him ride in the same carriage. More was to come. 
Caesar would once again be consul in 44 BC, and this time he chose Antony as his colleague, even though at 39, the latter was still several years below the legal age for the office. Antony was excited by his return to favor and rushed back to Rome, where he celebrated in a tavern. When it was dark, he came in disguise, posing as one of his own slaves with a message for Fulvia from her husband, and was promptly ushered in to her presence. She was worried, fearing that he wrote because something bad had happened, a natural fear made all the more powerful since she was already widowed twice. Cicero claims it was actually a passionate letter in which he promised, at long last, to be devoted only to her and to give up Cytheris. As Fulvia started to read, the slave suddenly took her in his arms and kissed her. Again, super sweet and romantic, besides the Roman slavery. Fulvia and Antony had two sons, Marcus Antonius Antilius and Iulius Antonius. There was a lot of speculation of how Fulvia may have influenced Antony and his political decisions. For example, Antony advocated giving Sicilians full Roman citizenship, an idea that may have come from Fulvia. That's from Wikipedia, cited from the article, Antony, Fulvia, and the Ghost of Claudius in 47 BC. While the Roman Republic was a man's world, Fulvia was nonetheless ambitious, as was clear almost 10 years ago when she used Claudius's corpse to attract a following to herself. Antony inherited Claudius's gangs via her, also according to Antony, Fulvia, and the Ghost of Claudius in 47 BC. However, all was not perfect for Fulvia and Antony. For one, the Ides of March happened. Brutus, Cassius, and dozens of other senators killed Julius Caesar, for whom Antony basically owed all his power. However, in the power vacuum, Antony stepped up, and he was legally empowered since he was a consul. At Caesar's funeral, Antony pulled a fulvia and displayed a model of Caesar's stabbed body and his bloody toga and set the Roman populace against the so-called liberators like Brutus and Cassius. I recently listened to another history podcast, The Explorers. In The Explorers' series on the first ladies of Imperial Rome, she implied that Fulvia inspired or colluded with Mark Antony when he delivered his eulogy of Caesar that turned Rome into a frenzy against Brutus and Cassius, as she had done with Claudius's body. I personally can't find anything that explicitly says Fulvia advised Antony to do this, but the parallels between Fulvia using Claudius's body and Antony using Caesar's are very apparent. It's very possible that this stroke of genius that turned Rome against the assassins trying to free the Republic came from Fulvia. The Explorers' series on the Augustas was a really fun listen, and I recommend you check her out. With Brutus and Cassius heading east and beginning to raise an army, Antony would surely have to wrestle control for the Republic in a civil war. However, besides external threats to his power, Antony had other enemies much closer to home. Cicero remained an ardent critic of Antony, whose power was only increasing and did not have Caesar as a check on him. Additionally, Caesar's teenage great-nephew Gaius Octavius arrived in Rome seeking to start his career in politics and was expecting the fortune left to him in Caesar's will. As time went on, 
Antony's position and power weakened. To recap from chapter 15 of Death of the Roman Republic, Cicero wrote a speech called the First Philippics and a pamphlet called the Second Philippics, which tore apart Antony's character and career. Cicero never forgot how Antony flagrantly strut his power when Caesar was alive and was concerned. Antony might become an even worse dictator than Caesar if he stayed in power. Caesarians were also starting to turn on Antony. Besides the funeral, Antony, who was apparently their leader, did nothing to punish the men who murdered Caesar. Young Octavius, who upon accepting Julius Caesar's will, became his adopted son and was now named Gaius Julius Caesar Octavianus, or as we say, Octavian. Anyway, young Octavian was building himself a private army. He was stealing from Antony's own armies by offering them more than what Antony was paying and promising Caesar's veterans he was actually going to do something about Brutus and Cassius, as Antony had done little to bring them to justice besides scaring them out of Rome. When Antony's time as consul ended, he went north for his governorship of Cisalpine Gaul. However, Cicero portrayed this as Antony taking an illegal army north and was illegally usurping Cisalpine Gaul's legal governor, Decimus Brutus, one of Caesar's assassins. Cicero was also now supporting Octavian. Caesar's teenage adopted son was in over his head, and after his illegal private army was used to take down Antony, Octavian would easily be disposed of. So, Cicero and the Senate supported Octavian and sanctioned his once illegal army. Octavian and two of Rome's consuls for the year went to Gaul to put Antony down. For Cicero, it was all coming together. This is how I went. For Fulvia, a lot was falling apart on her, and in Rome, she was struggling. As Rome's support of Antony decreased, his and Fulvia's enemies started taking jabs at her. The two had been living very large under Caesar's dictatorship and during Antony's brief ascendancy as the Big Kahuna, and they had acquired quite a few debts. For example, after Caesar and Antony won the civil war against Pompey Magnus, Antony bought Pompey's house at auction. However, he was surprised that Caesar was actually going to make him pay full price for the home of his former enemy. With Antony away and struggling with money, his and Fulvia's enemies attacked Fulvia in the courts, hoping to seize their property. Oh my god. I am never going to financially recover from this. Cicero's friend Atticus stood by Fulvia in the courts and loaned her extra money so she wouldn't go bankrupt. Antony's army fought Octavian and the two consuls. Antony was defeated, but not killed, at the Battle of Mutina. Antony and some of his men escaped to safer territory near another Roman general, Marcus Aemilius Lepidus. Antony's soldiers fraternized with Lepidus's, and Lepidus's soldiers would start leaving him to join Antony's army. And Lepidus himself became Antony's ally. Antony had turned defeat into victory. Well, 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 how the turntables. At the Battle of Mutina, Octavian's fellow generals and Rome's two consuls were killed. Octavian marched his army south back to Rome and camped outside the city. The threat of his army taking control of the city was clear. Cicero was probably realizing that he had made a serious miscalculation in thinking Octavian was a pawn that would be easily disposed of. Well, well, well. How the turntables. 
The intimidated Senate gave the 20-year-old warlord what he wanted, a consulship. Octavian was less than half the required age to be a consul, but Big Stick Diplomacy won the day. Cicero was none too pleased at the monster he created. I've made a huge mistake. But if he and other senators wanted to live, they had best capitulate. The last thing they wanted was for Octavian to pull a sola, invade Rome itself, start prescribing politicians, and become a dictator. The consul Octavian went north once more to fight Antony. Cicero was probably hoping that Antony and Octavian would kill each other. However, to recall from chapter 15, the massive armies of Antony, Lepidus, and Octavian did not end up fighting each other. The soldiers were far too brotherly to make war on one another, and besides, they all had a common enemy. After three days of meetings, realizing they had similar common interests, Antony, Lepidus, and Octavian came to a conclusion. Hey. hey. So listen, I was hey. thinking so that listen, it might be a good I idea so if you and I formed an alliance. An alliance might be a good idea. Do you want to form an alliance with me? Absolutely, I do. Good, good, excellent. Okay, now we need to figure out who's vulnerable and who's protected. They agreed to form the Board of Three to restore the state, or as we call it, the Second Triumvirate. While the First Triumvirate of Caesar, Pompey Magnus, and Crassus was informal, where they called in favors for each other to get what they wanted, this second triumvirate was far different. Antony, Lepidus, and Octavian could make laws without consulting the Senate. Essentially, they were three united dictators who controlled 40 legions between them and their allies. Manipulating the popular will like the Gracchi, the Senate did not vote these men these insane powers, but the Roman people did. Two loyal Caesarians and Caesar's son with a massive army could at the very least keep them safe, for the true Caesar stands, they could also avenge Caesar's death. The second triumvirate was to have power over the Republic for five years. The alliance was strengthened with marriages, and Octavian would be wed to Antony's young stepdaughter, Claudia. Uh, adding in some new content now, Claudia was the daughter of Fulvia and her first husband, Claudius. Claudia may have been around 12 or 13, so it would be a while before her marriage to Octavian was consummated. Nonetheless, and as always, marriage was a great way to solidify an alliance. Politics, baby. While the new triumvirate now had a gigantic army to intimidate or kill their enemies, this created a new problem. Let's review chapter 15 again. Immediately, their massive combined army had to be given money to keep them loyal, but they didn't have all the money to pay such an army. Without cash on hand to pay them, the obvious answer was to take wealth from the wealthy. Caesar was killed by the men he had forgiven. Antony, Lepidus, and Octavian would not make the mistake of showing mercy. It is happening again. The worst of civil wars had returned. The second triumvirate reinstated death lists and prescriptions. Yes, the old ways are still best. Time is a flat circle. It's like poetry, so if they rhyme. Among the prescribed Romans was Marcus Tullius Cicero, who, like so many others, was executed. Cicero, who had so vehemently denounced Mark Antony, was slain. To quote Adrian Goldsworthy from Antony and Cleopatra, 
Cicero's killers took his head directly to Antony, who was said to have been at dinner when they arrived. He is supposed to have gleefully held the severed head in his hands. Fulvia was even more exultant, grabbing the grisly trophy and mocking the orator. She took pins from her hair and jabbed them into the orator's tongue. She's crazier than him. This story comes from the ancient historian Cassius Dio and may not be entirely true, but there are really disturbing and beautiful paintings depicting this, one called Fulvia with the Head of Cicero by Pavel Zvedomsky and The Vengeance of Fulvia by Francisco Mara y Montaner, which are easily found on her Wikipedia page. To be sure, Fulvia had a bone to pick with Cicero. Cicero had tried and failed to tear down her first husband Claudius and spread rumors of an incestuous relationship between Claudius and his sister. Now, Cicero had failed to tear down her third husband, Mark Antony, who was much more than a consul, but a triumvir. More than that, a triumvir enacting prescriptions, killing his enemies, and making money. <laughs> I need a gangster to love me better than all the others do to During the prescriptions, if you were named an enemy by Antony, Octavian, or Lepidus, you had no legal protection. Anyone can kill you and be rewarded by the triumvirs. Running was a solid option if you could get away safely, but whatever property you left in Rome was seized by the triumvirs who were hoarding wealth to pay their gigantic armies from which they derived their power. However, there were ways to get off the death list. One woman is said to have slept with Antony, so her husband would be removed from the prescriptions, and Fulvia and Antony are said to have accepted bribes as well. There is also an instance of Fulvia wanting a man prescribed so she could claim his property. Of course, it's important to be wary of how much of this and much of this period that we can really trust. In a few years, Antony and Octavian would be at each other's throats, and Octavian would win. Octavian and Augustus had a lot of propaganda written about them to make him look good, and a lot of propaganda to blacken his enemies' names. Enemies like Antony, and soon, Fulvia. Antony and Octavian would finally go east, where they would fight and defeat Brutus and Cassius at the Battle of Philippi. Antony was the truest victor here, having consistently performed well in the battle, whereas young Octavian had been troubled by illness at its start, and whose men were subsequently savaged by Brutus. After the battle, History records Antony wrapping the fallen Brutus in his own general's cloak and apparently pardoning most of the soldiers who surrendered to him. Many of those soldiers loyally served Antony in the future, and I can't find anything that said Antony executed any of his prisoners. Octavian, on the other hand, was quite vicious towards his prisoners, executing many and even making a father and son gamble on which one was going to be killed first. While hindsight tells us that Octavian would eventually triumph as Rome's first emperor, it's important to remember here that right now he's a young warlord with a hated reputation. Octavian killed prisoners, prescribed Rome's elite, and was a sickly coward in battle. While he had a loyal army that gave him power, 
Armies were not invincible, and Octavian's less than sterling reputation would make him even less invincible. After the Battle of Philippi, the Roman Republic was divided up by the Triumvirs. Antony would control the rich eastern provinces of the Republic, and Octavian would take much of the west. Lepidus would control the African province. In the east, Antony became enamored with Cleopatra, and they began their famous affair. Fulvia was left in Rome with Octavian, and let me tell you, it was not going to end well for our girl Fulvia. The year was 41 BCE. Mark Antony's brother, Lucius Antonius, was one of Rome's two consuls. However, above the consuls stood Octavian, the triumvir. Octavian had the unenviable task of seizing Italian land and giving it to his retiring veterans. While this was deeply unpopular, it was much better to upset the Italians than his own army. Octavian also had to contend with the rogue Sextus Pompey, the surviving son of Pompey Magnus, whose rogue naval squadron was disrupting food shipments from getting to Rome, further embittering Rome's population against him. Fulvia at this point was probably the most powerful woman in Rome. Mother-in-law to Octavian, sister-in-law to the consul Lucius, and wife to the triumvir Mark Antony. Cassius Dio actually describes that she was as much of a consul as Lucius was. And yet, that husband was off in the east, having a not-so-secret affair with an Egyptian queen. There were a lot of possible reasons for the conflict dubbed the Peruzine War was about to happen. Let's assume they're all valid, and you can decide for yourself which was the most important in the civil war that was about to occur between Fulvia and Lucius versus Octavian. For one, Fulvia was an ambitious woman who year by year had been claiming more and more power for herself. Second, she wanted her husband Mark Antony to have greater power than Octavian. Octavian, getting to settle these veterans and giving them prime land in Italy, would endear them to him and not Antony. Simultaneously, Octavian was taking away people's lands and homes, making many upset in the process, and was not dealing with Sextus Pompey, who was starving the city of Rome itself. Fulvia saw him as more vulnerable now than ever. In fact, it was around this time too that Octavian divorced Fulvia's daughter Claudia so he could marry Scribonia to try to handle Sextus Pompey. Scribonia was Sextus Pompey's father-in-law's sister. By my math, Claudia was around 14 or 15 at this point, and Octavian claimed their marriage had still never been consummated. While divorce was a common political tool, Politics, baby. Fulvia was none too pleased that Octavian had divorced her daughter. Then there was Lucius Antonius himself, a Roman aristocrat, who himself aspired for wealth, power, and glory. Adrian Goldsworthy actually has Lucius as the first instigator in the impending war. Fulvia was initially reluctant to support him, but would eventually do so. Lucius probably imagined himself a triumvir next to his brother Marky Mark, rather than Octavian. The consul Lucius was in fact giving Octavian a headache, as he was explicitly advocating for the Italians whose land Octavian was seizing for his veterans. Finally, and this is the most speculative and reductive, it's possible Fulvia wanted her husband's attention. Mark Antony had abandoned his wife for the East and was cavorting with Cleopatra. A civil war in Italy could draw him home, and once again, she would have his attention. She tried to rally veterans to fight against Octavian, but very few did, since Octavian was the one doling out land to them. Taking into account Fulvia and Lucius's ambitions, the weaknesses in Octavian's position, 
and the slights against Fulvia, it was when Octavian was outside of Rome that Fulvia and Lucius struck. The third wheel Lepidus was left holding Rome. The plan was to overthrow Octavian, taking power for themselves, and strengthen the Antonian hold over the Roman world. To quote Karen Murderasi from her article, The Woman Who Would Be King, on HistoryToday.com, there were coins from the time with her image on them in the form of a winged victory to show how serious this bid was. Fulvia was the first living woman ever to have her face on Roman coinage. The only other living Romans with their faces on coins were Antony, Octavian, and Lepidus. Fulvia and Lucius had raised eight legions in total, and Lepidus's inferior forces were scared out of Rome. But Lepidus joined up with Octavian, whose army was larger and more experienced than what Lucius and Fulvia could muster. Now, it was Lucius who was scared out of Rome, and would be cornered in the city of Perugia, surrounded by Octavian's forces. Fulvia herself remained in Rome. However eastward Mark Antony was, he still had three loyal generals in Italy. But for all their posturing, they ultimately did not move against Octavian, which would have escalated the civil war, and Mark Antony himself did not lift a finger to aid his brother or wife's civil war. He gave no orders to his generals, he sent no forces from the east. They went without his support. While Lucius was surrounded at Perugia, Octavian's forces threw lead-sling bullets with insulting messages at the surrounding army. One of them called Lucius bald. Another one of them called Fulvia an Slut! Legitimately, there are some very crude words written about Fulvia, and you better believe a lot has to do with her sex. Octavian himself published a short poem whose first few lines, when translated and sanitized, goes like this. Since Antony was screwing Glaphyra, Fulvia's taking revenge by screwing me. It is worth noting that Glaphyra was yet another woman Antony was having an affair with, and Octavian's poem only gets grosser from there. Ultimately, after two months, his food running out, and no help coming from his brother or his brother's generals, Lucius surrendered to Octavian in 40 BCE. Lucius was sent to govern a Spanish province, and Fulvia took her children and fled Rome toward Mark Antony and would meet him in Athens. Antony and Fulvia who were possibly having an affair years before their marriage, had once been so in love. With him, she celebrated in all his triumphs. Antony, Caesar's loyal and trusted lieutenant. Antony, consul after the Ides of March and Caesar's Avenger. Antony, the triumvir who finally silenced Cicero. But now, Antony was somewhere between cold and furious towards Fulvia, who started a civil war against his ally without his approval. He never lifted a finger to help his wife or brother and escalate the civil war with Octavian. Now in my head, there is a political element to consider, as if Antony was publicly upset at Fulvia, it further absolved him of instigating her little civil war. But after a lifetime of climbing her way to the top of Roman society, and finally reaching that peak with the triumvir Mark Antony, to no longer feel his warmth was a lot for Fulvia to bear. She was not forgiven, and Mark Antony was no longer her ride-or-die gangster. 
Few months after Antony left her in Greece, Fulvia died at 43 years old. It was likely some unknown illness combined with emotional distress, but some romantics out there could chalk it up to a broken heart. It was easy to rest the greatest blame of the Perusine War at Fulvia's feet since she wasn't alive to defend herself. All in all, Fulvia was hyperactive in Roman politics compared to any other woman of her era. And just to be clear what that means, she encouraged, if not instigated, a whole civil war. That is very impressive for a woman to pull off in Roman society. She caught a lot of flack for that, and we should be wary of what our sources have to say about her, and we must consider how much is tainted by propaganda and biases, and she should have been named in my main series of Death of the Roman Republic. Like Servilia, I have a lot of questions about Fulvia and her much shorter life. What was Fulvia's life really like in the periods Mark Antony was away, when he was fighting Octavian in Gaul and when he was out in the east? Fulvia did apparently wield a lot of power, but how did she feel that he was out campaigning and ruling while she was left more vulnerable in Rome? What did other women think of Fulvia at the time? Did they consider her a trailblazer or uncouth? How did Fulvia feel about Mark Antony's constant affairs he had once sworn his sole devotion to her, but would break that promise many times over the course of their marriage, and everyone knew about it. What we do know about Fulvia was that she was ambitious, and that for all her faults, and all his faults, she was devoted to her husbands. In a hyper-patriarchal society like the Roman Republic, Fulvia was fearless and peerless in her actions. To end the story of Fulvia's life with another quote by Karen Murderasi, Fulvia was a courageous woman. Although she was insulted as unwomanly for her political activities, even her detractors had to admit she was a force to be reckoned with. More than just somebody's wife, somebody's daughter, somebody's sister, Fulvia was the unofficial fourth member of the Triumvirate, who very nearly changed the course of Roman history. Thank you for listening to this post-series episode. Next month, I hope to pick up roughly where Fulvia's life ends, Mark Antony and Octavian's relationship is on the rocks, and Mark Antony is single. Perhaps another marriage to a notable Roman woman would smooth things over. Politics, baby. I'll leave that as a teaser for now. Tune in and find out who it is next month, if I can get it done over spring break. If you've never listened to the main series, Death of the Roman Republic, I implore you to do so as well. Fulvia's life is embedded in the Death of the Roman Republic, and she herself played a role in it, even if you wouldn't have heard her name in the main series. This episode probably would have made more sense if you had a background in Roman history, so if you would like a shred of context, DOTRR is a great start if I do say so myself. Then again, if you're looking for a podcast about a lady named Fulvia, I'm guessing you probably know some Roman history already. But with all that said, friends, Romans, countrymen, I hope you enjoyed the show. Oh.
The romantic in me also has a fan theory that I know is not true, but I think is worth bringing up. When Fulvia went to Greece after the Peruzine War to be with Mark Antony and he scorned her, Antony actually desperately wanted to be with her, forgive her, accept her, and be with her. But to do that would have made him look suspicious, like he did instigate and want this civil war with Octavian. It's basically a warped version of Walter White's final phone call to Skyler in Breaking Bad, which is possibly the best scene in all of Breaking Bad, and definitely the best scene of Ozymandias. I don't quite know who is Walt and who is Skyler in this situation, but bear with me here. Why can't you do one thing, I say? This is your fault. This is what comes of your disrespect. I warned you for a solid year. You cross me, there will be consequences. What part of that didn't you understand? Maybe now you'll listen. Maybe now you'll use your head. You know, you never believed in me. You were never grateful for anything I did for this family. Oh, no. You have to stop. You have to stop this. It's immoral. It's illegal. Someone might get hurt. You're always whining and complaining about how I make my money, just dragging me down while I do everything. And now, after I've told you and told you to keep your mouth shut. I'm sorry. You, you have no right to discuss anything about what I do. Or what do you know about it anyway? Nothing. I built this, me, me alone, nobody else. You're right. You're right. You mark my words, toe the line. He crossed me. <laughs> you think about that. Family or no? You let that sink in. Please, just come home. I've still got things left to do. Uh, yeah, I don't know quite who is who in that situation. I th I think Fulvia is mostly Walt, and she's, she's just saying, uh, I'm gonna stop saying things about Breaking Bad at this point. 